Greetings, and welcome to Research on Religion, a weekly podcast series devoted to the social scientific study of religion. I'm Anthony Gill, your host, professor of political science at the University of Washington, and distinguished senior fellow at Baylor University's Institute for Studies of Religion, the gracious sponsor of our podcast. We encourage you to visit our website at www.researchonreligion.org to post comments, ask questions, access additional material related to today's program, and to find out what is happening at the Institute. All right, let's begin. My guest today is Colleen Haight, an Associate Professor of Economics at San Jose State University and an all-around Renaissance economist. After receiving a bachelor's degree in French literature from UCLA, Colleen made her way eventually to George Mason University where she earned her PhD in economics. She has written broadly on regulatory policy, including a focus on such commodities as champagne and coffee. Hmm. In fact, Professor Haight has written one of my most favorite articles on fair trade coffee that I've ever read, one that I've used in my classes and will also post a link up for those of you who enjoy hot cups of caffeine like I do. <clears throat> More direct to our purposes, though, she has written on the economics of religion, including how, high, how members of high-tension religions serve as effective merchants, and a fascinating paper on the Oracle of Delphi with two of my other favorite economists, Larry Iannacone and Jared Rubin, the latter who has appeared on our show before, and the former who has promised to make an appearance. Larry, I know you're out there, so give me a call. And anybody else who sees Larry walking around, poke him to tell him to give me a call. We will link to Jared's podcast, but more importantly to Colleen's writing on our website, so please stop by and say hello. We are also at 499 Facebook fan page likes, so you can be the one who puts us over the top by going out to Facebook and liking us for regular updates. Colleen, welcome to Research on Religion. Hi, Tony. Thank you very much for inviting me to join you today. I am absolutely delighted to be here. That is so cool, because it's, it's great having you. I remember meeting you many, many years ago uh, back in Norfolk, Virginia at a conference, and so good to have you on the show. Now, you've done some interesting work on religion, but I want to focus our attention today on the paper you did on the Delphi Oracle, and this is where my knowledge really hits a limit. I I don't know that many oracles, and I've only vaguely heard about this one at Delphi. So help me out here and tell me what this whole oracle stuff is all about. Absolutely. Well, first, uh, you just remind me that uh, some some folks in the money and banking area used to refer to Alan Greenspan as the oracle, and there is uh, there is some parallels there that we'll take a look at. But when I talk about oracles, normally what I'm talking about is the oracle, uh, which is the person that speaks for the divine, offering uh, normally predictions of the future. In a sense, they're portals, human portals. Sometimes they're even bones or other artifacts that speak for the gods uh, to make sure that humans have signs of what needs to be um, what important details need to have some attention paid to. So there are lots of religions um, and religious traditions that actually involve uh, this type of oracle or some sort of oracle, either currently or historically. Now, wait a minute. Did you just call Alan Greenspan a bunch of bones and chicken entrails? <laughs> 
Not exactly, but uh, there's, there could be an economist out there who might say mm. that, so, mm. but I certainly wouldn't do so. Okay. Okay, so, so this oracle thing or person is somebody who speaks for the gods. Uh, what about this Delphi thing? Well, the Delphic Oracle actually is, again, a person who spoke on behalf of the god Apollo uh, to the ancient Greeks. Now, one of the things that's sort of interesting here is there, there was a translation mechanism. So the actual priestesses who would sit and to whom God, uh, the god Apollo would speak to directly, they would actually um, be on a pedestal and they would be writhing and often uh, saying things that were not easy to comprehend. But there would also be priests in the room that would interpret for them and make sure that the petitioner got the information that they needed. So there was a translation uh, process there in place. But the Delphic Oracle actually, in a sense, wasn't terribly unusual in that there were many other oracles that existed contemporaneously in Greece. What was unusual about Delphi is that they enjoyed an amazing amount of success, both in terms of accurate prophecy but also in uh, terms of sheer volume of visitors. Mm. So was it rather unique, even though there were many of these temples, many writhing virgins sitting on pedestals uh, with priests surrounding them in gorgeous buildings. But the Delphi Oracle tends to be one that was more well-respected and was more sought out than any of the others. Now, when you said or talked about oracles before. You say it's a person who interprets for the gods, but as you describe this Delphic oracle, it appears to be a certain place that there are people sitting at this certain place, and if you go and look it up on the interwebs, which which I have, it, it does show you a physical location. So where was this Delphic oracle, and, and what did it look like? Ah, okay. Well, Delphi is actually located in central Greece, in an area that originally didn't fall within any of the major city-states of the time. And it's an unusual place. I said that there were other oracles. Um, Lydia and other, other Athens had their own. But Delphi was interesting. Now, all of these um, oracles spoke in beautiful temples. Um, many of these beautiful temples uh, happened to be situated in areas where there were certain fumes uh, that would come up through the volcanic soil, through you know, sulfur coming up through bituminous limestone. And some authors have suggested that the young lady who was sitting on the pedestal basically had the equivalent of sniffing glue. Yeah. And so she was rather um, perhaps high mm. when giving these prophecies. And that might account for some of the writhing and the incoherent speech that's reported in some of the record. Now, I'm, I'm having a, a sense that the fact that this was at a fumarole, a sulfuric fumarole, is going to be rather important because it tends to be a focal point, but let's hold off on that for a minute. We can do that. Okay. What else did these things look like? Well, Delphi um, was a rather large city for the time. It developed in the 8th century when it first sort of started out, it was not really as prominent. It was supposedly the navel of the world, which is an interesting thing. Mm. In fact, there's a large 
sculpture there in the ruins that you can still see today that they refer to as the navel or the birthplace of civilization. Now, who knows where that came from? And in the 8th century, it didn't seem particularly important. But by the 6th century B.C., what we see is Delphi changes from a small rural temple into a very prominent resource uh, for information and prophecy. And that lasted nearly, um, well, actually a little over 200 years, right up until the time where the Delphi area became the territory of Philip of Macedon in the 4th century. Before the 4th century, there was a collection of city-states around that protected Delphi, but no one of them actually owned it or operated it in any way. They, they were just around in the area, and all of them used Delphi as a source. Now, you talk about using Delphi, and there's somebody who interprets the words of God, maybe sitting upon a sulfuric fumarole from volcanic activity. Uh, when would people use this, and, and who would be using it? Could I just, you know, be walking by and say, hey, you know, I need to talk to God for a little bit. Uh, <laughs> hey, hey, priestess, sniff some fumes, would you? Uh, who, who's using this, and what do they use it for? All right, well, that's a great question, because it's not as uh, most, um, I would say, Christians in the U.S., for example, we think of communing with God. It can be a very personal thing. It can happen... You know, uh, we see pictures of children by the bedside praying at night. This is something a little bit different. Here you actually are going to the representative of your God. Now, you have to make an appointment. Mm -hmm. This uh, was not something that happened every day. It was actually took place one day a month, which made it rather inconvenient, because remember, people are traveling from far away to get to uh, this. And the people that are traveling... These are not normal, everyday people. These are wealthy individuals, elites of the society, and in many cases, in most cases, they are political elites, so rulers or generals or someone in a position of power. They go to the oracle looking for answers. If they're going to be engaging in a battle, they want to know, is this a good idea? Is Apollo going to smile upon my efforts, or is... Is, am I doomed to failure? And what they find is, according to Plato, who is writing, of course, many, many years after, they find that these prognostications are actually quite accurate. So when the Delphic Oracle, you know, translated by the priest, of course, said, you, sir, will win your battle, and here's how it's going to happen, it actually did happen. Now, normally when, when we think of prophecies or you think of, you know, going to the carnival and going to the, the what is it, the Zotar coin-operated uh, wizard there to find your fortune, it's pretty vague. You know, something marvelous will happen to you. Well, okay, what marvelous thing and how marvelous is it going to be? It's not very specific, so it's a hard thing to say it didn't come true. But in the case of what the oracle uh, would have to say, these were pretty darn specific things, and with sufficient detail to say, yes, this is actually going to happen, and it did happen in the way it was said, hmm. which makes it quite unusual. Is there a, an essence of a self-fulfilling prophecy here? You, you, you know, ask the 
the Oracle, hey, I'm going to go out and fight a battle. Should I be fighting this battle? And the, it, the Oracle says, no, don't fight that battle. And you you don't go and say, oh, that was a good choice. There's, could there be a little bit of self-fulfilling prophecy here? Oh, there absolutely is. Um, I, I would think. Now, this is where I have to give some opinion because, of course, I wasn't there at the time. I'm, I'm old, but not quite that old. And what we find is that Delphi, because it was a major um, hub for people to come from all over. So let's say you and I are on opposing sides. We both want to take over uh, the river in between us because we need water for our crops. And we disagree. We can't seem to share. So we're going to go to battle. We end up at the uh, oracle asking, you know, Who's going to win this battle? Now, we're not together, and because it takes so long to get there, and we, when we get there, maybe it's not quite time for her to work that month, so we may have to wait a couple weeks. Well, while we're waiting around, of course, we're eating and drinking and socializing with, and perhaps even seeing performances, because Delphi had a lot to offer its visitors, and we're talking to people. Now, who are we talking to? We're talking to the priests that operate it, but they may also be that evening's bartender at the pub, so to speak. Mm. So they're listening to all of the information, all of the gossip. They know what's going on. It, basically what we have is the oracle at Delphi, the town of Delphi, acted like a clearinghouse for information so that the priests could gather a lot of information before the question was ever asked. Now, if the priests learn that you have a, a much better force than I have, and when we go to battle, it's quite likely that you're going to prevail. And I go to ask the god, am I going to prevail? And the god says, no, you're not. In fact, you're going to lose. You know, when, when you go, you're going you're gonna to be ambushed. Mm-hmm. Now, I might disregard that and try anyway, but chances are I'm going to look at that and say, oh, geez. You know, we have an uphill battle here, and I may feel that I'm going to lose before I even go into battle. On the other hand, when you get your prophecy that says you're going to win, your troops are pumped up, they're ready to go, they're going in there with the mindset that this is going to happen. And so, yes, I think there is some aspect of a self-fulfilling prophecy, but there's also all of this information that's gleaned from the time that the petitioners spend in Delphi before they can actually get to the Oracle. Now, one of the other things that you mentioned in your article, and I should uh, mention that the name of the article is called Lessons from Delphi, Religious Markets and Spiritual Capitals. We're going to link to that on our website. One of the things that you mentioned there is that it just wasn't coming to petition, but there were a lot of other things like festivals and stuff going on. What? How else is this thing used? Well, it, the general purpose was to see the oracle. Mm-hmm. But now, if that oracle only works one day a month, and in fact, they, it, it, one of the interesting details is they were, they were running out of virgins in Delphi. Ruh-roh. Hard to imagine, I, I know. But at some point, there was a decision made that there were so many petitioners, and the virgins, of course, you know, perhaps sniffing glue isn't that healthy a, <laughs> an endeavor. Um, <laughs> They didn't necessarily last a long time, 
so Delphi started dipping into postmenopausal women mm. uh, to fill in uh, the virgin role, and uh, so there was there was a lot of turnover here. When you got to town, again, you spent all this time there. Well, this is a hospitality industry. This is uh, people are are not stupid. If they have a lot of visitors coming in, those visitors perhaps have depleted their resources in getting there. Um, Perhaps they've come from overseas, they get there, they've eaten all of the livestock that they brought along the way to serve as the food source. They're, they need to replenish. So you have people coming in a very vibrant market environment to sell to these visitors because they do need resources, etc. Now, of course, they need to find some way to spend their time. So, yes, there were... Uh, dances and festivals and all sorts of worship-oriented things happening, but also all of the other types of things that you would associate with hospitality industry. Think Vegas, perhaps a little less seedy, but perhaps not. There, there may have been a thriving industry to provide uh, all sorts of different services. Well, there, there were you know sulfur-induced virgins around there, so I can imagine <laughs> exactly. it's kind of like Vegas. Um, <laughs> it, it, and it is important because because as I was reading it, it, you mentioned that there were artistic competitions and also athletic competitions, and there and other places around Greece at this time, like say in Marathon or Olympus, there were these things called. The Olympics, and nowadays we think about these just as international competitions that come on the television every four years. But as I think we'll see later, they it has a, a bigger economic and informational role for a lot of people. Absolutely. In fact, uh, Olympia was one of the cities that is quite similar to Delphi, not in, in having a temple per se, uh, but in that it was not under any particular control. There was no... Um, for example, they did not hold Olympic Games in Athens. Mm -hmm. The reason they did not is because Athens might be able to persuade referees or those making judgments of who won what might be influenced by the people they need to report to the rest of the year. Whereas in Olympia, these officials were not of those places, so competitors could come and know that the competition would be judged in a manner that was a lot more fair or respectful than might happen elsewhere. Well, it's a good thing that those Greeks solved that problem early, and we haven't had any problems with officiating in the Olympics since then. <laughs> <laughs> what a wonderful thing. Yeah, and so that that's a very interesting thing, and I think this is going to come up later, but there's a few more questions I have to probe you on in terms of what this oracle was all about. You mentioned that the the oracle would give answers. Were these long, lengthy answers that extended for pages upon pages or what? Well, it, it depends. Uh, the records say that some of them were very detailed. Some were more of the yes or no variety. Mm -hmm. So they were very direct. Is this, uh, am I going to win this battle? No. And we're not going to give you any detail. No, that's it. Go away. Kind of like an ancient magic eight ball. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Sometimes you get a few more words, sometimes you don't, and that might depend also on how well the clearinghouse of information worked. Mm -hmm. How much information did they really have? How specific could they really be? Now, Plato goes on, you know, of course, hundreds of years later, talking about how, well, they were very specific, and in some cases they were, 
But part of the problem is we can't really look at those. Hmm. We don't know exactly what was said because, well, at that point, they weren't writing these things down. Most of, most of the writing that endures was chiseled into stone, and we simply don't have those types of records. Anything that might have been written down has been lost. They should have used the Internet. Exactly. And then the NSA would have collected all that stuff. um, (laughs) Well, they need to put it in the cloud. There you go. (laughs) Silly Greeks using stone instead of the Internet. Well, there you have it. Um, So a lot of stuff wasn't written down, but are are there any existing examples, maybe that Plato has written down, that uh, illustrate some more famous uh, instances of the use of the oracle? He has written some things down. I, I don't have any of that at hand. But what I can tell you is he, he did live quite a ways after this time period. So what we find is that it is a report that he's written down from somebody else who got it from somebody else who got it from somebody else. I've heard similar things said about you know the, the accounts of what Jesus said in the Bible because, you know, portions were written so so long after. Do we really know? Um, and, and, of course, I'm not going to be the one that say we do or we don't. We recently had a podcast on that, so I'll refer people back to Sean Everton's uh, podcast on the Jesus Seminar, but yeah, go ahead. So along those same lines, um, Plato was reporting what he knew to be true, of course, but how true was it? It's only as good as his sources, and we don't really know um, who his sources were. And, yeah. you know, we can only say this is what Plato had to say about it. A lot of embellishments, I can imagine, are occurring over the centuries. It could be. Yeah. Could be. One last question about the workings of the Delphic Oracle, and this is one that uh, most of us would think that an economist would, would know about. Is How do you pay for this? I mean, this can't be cheap, finding <laughs> virgins and building stone seats to sit on and probably of marble and all that kind of stuff. So how do you pay for this? Oh, it, it was not cheap. I, I have to say, if, if you ever have the chance uh, to visit Delphi, or maybe you already have, it, there are some amazing things to see there. I, I highly encourage uh, you and your listeners to give it a shot if you ever have the chance. What you, most of the tours will start at the main entranceway, and you walk up a winding paved road, and it's, you know, paved in marble, and there's these beautiful marble buildings all around, and, and you start to wonder, what are the, all of these, you know, beautifully carved marble buildings? And you're told, well, these are the treasuries. Mm. What are the treasuries? Well, when uh, the king of so-and-so comes into town and wants, wants to know something, he pretty much has to pay. And there's, you know, some talk of a deposit of, say, a tenth of the spoils of the battle. Um, but certainly in every case, there is some sort of payment. Now, this is also recorded at lesser uh, oracles, the less important that dealt more with the mundane matters. If uh, uh, I just wanted to go in and, and see if uh, I was going to get a raise next week, I might bring along a goat with me, mm. and I would sacrifice that of course, those sacrifices, it's not a waste here. The, the meat, everything is, is collected and, and used. Um, but, you know, the sacrifices that I've paid for 
my prophecy. Now, that was very much true of all of the visiting dignitaries. It's just the dignitaries could pay a lot more. Mm-hmm. So we had a lot of gold. We had a lot of um, precious stones, really interesting, intricately carved buildings, some, some fascinating things. One of the things that amazes me about this podcast is that I'm always constantly learning things. And I just learned the reason why I haven't been getting very many pay raises is because I have not been bringing in goats. You should try a goat. I should. Uh, I, I just come in and say, hey, I've written a bunch of papers in high-impact journals. And I, I'm, my chair is probably sitting there going, where's the goat? I'm like, i got to bring a goat next time. Yeah, yeah and, and you know, it helps if you have a barbecue nearby. Too. <laughs> yeah, things could get a little bit uh, messy and uh, perhaps delicious in the next month in, uh, in our department. So, Yay! okay, very cool. I I, I want to now go into your theory of how this thing is used because it's absolutely fascinating, and it not only tells us about the Oracle of Delphi, help us to explain its specific location and its uses, but also has some very broad-ranging impacts. But even before going into that, I have to ask this question. You're an economist. You, you studied French literature. You're at George Mason studying regulatory policy, writing about the regulation of champagne and fair trade coffee. How do you get to write about this ancient temple and oracle thousands of years ago. Where, how, where does this come from? <laughs> That's a, a great question. Uh, the short answer is, is that I have a very short attention span, so I tend to uh, go from interesting topic to interesting topic, perhaps a little faster than some. Um, but the longer answer, I, I guess, is that in general, I think we as academics tend to have varied and, and often quite strange interests, and I don't think I'm any different. Uh, when I came to academia, um, it was later in life, after successful careers in the airline industry and then in high tech, so I was quite a bit older than uh, a lot of my uh, cohort. When I decided to get uh, the Ph.D. in economics, one of the first people I met at George Mason was Larry Yannacone. Now, he's, he's at Chapman University in Southern California now, but at the time, um, he was a huge influence on me, and, and actually the things that I've learned from him have influenced a lot of my work. So Larry's, um, since you haven't had him on the show yet, he's very well known for his work in the economics of religion, and I've heard some refer to him as uh, one of the founding fathers of the economics of religion. But when I first attended George Mason, I had no clue what that really meant. I mean, isn't economics supposed to be about GDP and unemployment, right? Yeah. Not, yeah. not about religion. Um, but Larry introduced me to the work of his mentor, Gary Becker, uh, who wrote a number of papers on how economics can be applied to things that happen every day, the household, for example. And Larry was applying it to religious choices. Because if you really think about economics, it's not just what is GDP. It's the study of why people do the things they do. What choices do they make given the constraints that they have? And if you look at choices and think about choices, to the outsider, some of the wackiest choices people make have to do with religious activity. Now, they're wacky to the outsiders, not to the insiders. And that brings us back to rational behavior. As an economist, 
I believe that most people act in a rational manner. And so religious activity, even if I don't on the outside understand why people are doing what they're doing, I take it as a given that there is some rational explanation, and therefore we can use economic tools to examine what those, uh, those choices really are all about. What are the costs? What are the benefits? And therefore, I would say that religion of all kind uh, is a perfectly rational choice. You just need to look into it to see what are the you know, investments that people are making in their faith and what kinds of returns on those investments are they expecting. And that often tells us a lot about why people do the things they do. That was one of the best descriptions of economics of religion that I have heard. And I'm going to be using this in my class because you explained so much better than I did. And I'm also thinking about how you categorize economics. It's not just about GDP, but about a wide range of other things, including champagne and coffee. And I'm, as I was thinking about that, I'm, your work on coffee, I'm pouring myself another cup of coffee here because your work has inspired me here. So let's, let's go ahead and, and talk about this wacky decision-making. And one would say that going to an oracle with sulfur-induced virgins is going to be wacky behavior, at least by our eyes now. But as you said, you believe people are rational, and there's some rationality to it. So go ahead and explain the political economy behind the Oracle of Delphi. Okay. Well, in order to do that, we need to step back and look at where Delphi was located. So we had the kings and the elite of, say, Athens and Sparta going to Delphi. Now, why, why on earth would they do that? That seems irrational in light of the fact that they had their own oracles right there in town. Why go to the expense and the trouble of traveling? And again, you know, back in 600 B.C., travel was not um, luxurious in any way, shape, or form, and it was downright dangerous in some cases. So why on earth would you do that when you have a temple, a perfectly good temple, right in your backyard? Mm-hmm. Well, part of the problem is that if I have, this is my town and I have a temple here, well, there's a pretty good connection between me and the religious authority at that temple. After all, if I'm the king or the queen, I can dictate a lot of what happens in my area. But it's also quite beneficial to me if I have a religious authority that says that I have some divine right to be where I am, to have you come to me for everything because I am God's choice, or the God's choice in this case. So if I want an honest-to-goodness, frank answer, and I go to my own temple, my guy might be tempted to tell me exactly what I want to hear and not maybe what he really thinks. Yeah, and I can imagine, too, your constituents are going to be a little bit froggy about the legitimacy of that explanation. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Now, on the other hand, if I head up to Delphi, I might be, I've heard the stories, you know, gee, they're accurate, but I also know that if I'm going to war with Sparta and I'm Athens, that Sparta does not control them. Because if I went to the Spartan Spartan Oracle, I would get a different story. So I need to go someplace where I can get neutral information. And that is what really made Delphi 
the popular place that it was. There was no, there was a group of city states that surrounded it that depended on each other for support, but didn't always agree. Delphi was the one thing that they all agreed we need to keep this sanctuary um, neutral, and it's going to be a money maker for all of us. It's it's a great thing, and uh, it brings people in and gives good advice. And we know it's good advice because we have this track record built up. No one controls it. No one can influence what the oracle says. And that is as very interesting what you just said. And I'm thinking about something that I really didn't pick up in the paper before, but as you were talking, it resonated with me. And that's how rulers in, in their local five fiefdoms or in their local city-states oftentimes prefer yes-men. It's really great to hear that you're right all the time. But in reality, having yes-men all the time can be a very, very bad policy or, or a, a bad strategy for a ruler because if you get bad information, well, that could lead to your overthrow or a number of other different problems. And so you, one can imagine that rulers do want valid information. Not only do their constituents want that, but you need it as well in order to figure, hey, do I really have a chance at this war? Absolutely. Absolutely. So the cost of bad information is sufficiently high uh, to outweigh um, or or to uh, the, the benefits of good information outweigh the cost of getting that information. And that's where we see people making the journey. Now, if I only want to know if my next child is going to be a boy or a girl, maybe I go locally because the the cost of my getting the wrong information isn't very costly, mm-hmm. right? So, But the cost of getting bad information if I'm going to war that's that's pretty important stuff and that seems to explain who it was used by and how it was used by or how it was used as well absolutely absolutely these these are big things these are big political decisions do we invade at this point in time or big investment decisions by wealthy people so yeah they have to do it now that uh, that brings up you, you you've talked about the political end here and religion and politics have always been rather uh, strange but close bedfellows as we go through time. So I have heard somebody has written on that. Mm-hmm. Somebody has, <laughs> yes. <laughs> and uh, I, the other influence that I had at, at George Mason, or the other two influences besides Larry, uh, were James Buchanan and Gordon Tullock. Uh, who did a lot of wonderful uh, groundbreaking work in the political sphere. And public choice theory. Absolutely. I love public that stuff. Theory. Mm-hmm. So I tend to apply a lot of that when I'm looking at the different types of behaviors out there. Why, why is it that Delphi and that neutrality, why was that important? Well, we just said because you can get better information. But how does that explain some of the other things we see. For example, we, we often see um, state religions. So the state actually adopts the religion in a very formal manner and says, we are a Catholic country or we are a Jewish country. And how does that play into this? And part of it goes back again to the idea of the political entity needing to have the blessing of the divine to sort of support their rule 
And, of course, the divine, in some cases, benefit greatly from having a state monopoly on their religious practice. So if I'm um, in, a, in Spain, in a, a very Catholic country, and this is our religion and we know this, then I don't really have to worry about the Protestants coming in because if they do, I can go to the state and we can get rid of them, Mm -hmm. or the Moors, for that example, or anyone that basically disagrees with me. I have access to state power as that religious leader, and in return, the state gets my uh, blessing, so to speak, on their uh, rule. And this goes back, and I've written on this, Larry has written on this, a lot of people have observed this. This goes back to Adam Smith observing this. Absolutely. Back in 1776, and he talked about one of the, he didn't quite use this term, but equilibrium, and you public choice types tend to use that, game Mm -hmm. theorist folks use that term, equilibrium, and that one of the equilibriums between church and state tends to be a state-run monopoly. In your paper, you also talk about another type of common equilibrium, and that is the free market equilibrium. What's that about? Yes. So think of the U.S., uh, a perfect example of a, an environment where we do not have a state monopoly um, religion. So now that's not to say we don't have a you know, very heavily Christian-influenced beginning and middle and current environment, um, but we do have choices. If, if you decide you want to go out and start your own religion, um, you can pretty much do that, and there's no problem doing that. Now, why is that? Well, one of the things is that we find is if we go back in time to the founding of our country, we had a number of uh, colonies that were established with the idea that people have escaped or left their homeland for the purpose of being able to practice their religion freely. Now, many cases, those were Catholics coming to um, avoid some type of persecution in England, where we've seen the rise of the Anglican Church. In some cases, it's different varieties of Protestants coming over. But in each case, there's a colony that's set up, and they don't necessarily agree that you should be able to practice any religion you want, but they're here because they want to practice theirs. So when we start to come together as a country, there is sufficient diversity so that when we created the federal system and the state system, the federal system, we said, federally, we do not have a state religion. We don't have a religion that every Um, colony or every state in the Union has to adopt. You can adopt any religion you want, and initially it was thought that the states themselves, Maryland, for example, would be able to decide what religion everyone in Maryland should be, and Virginia can make their own decision, and New York can make their own decision. As it turns out, our, our founding fathers did a sufficiently good job setting up the secular institutions, the, the institutions for justice and for governance and for the conduct of everyday business, that we didn't really need um, religion to be quite as pervasive in our environment as other countries have found that they need. So 
people were a little more lackadaisical about whether or not we needed to have those rules. And so we evolved into a country where we do have a free market in religion. And anything goes here and often does. And so we have two equilibrium points now. We have the monopolistic one that Adam Smith wrote about, also the free market one, which you just described, and Adam Smith also tended to write about, and Larry Yannacone and a few others have, have written about as well. But yeah. what's really cool about this work on the Delphi Oracle is that you discover a third equilibrium called, and I love this term, the neutral nexus. <laughs> what is that thing? The neutral nexus is takes the position that, well, there are, the, are these two fairly dominant strategies. We can have the state-imposed religion, or we can have the free market, and we do see a variety of examples uh, out there. What has escaped notice are the, the other examples. So we bring up the example of Delphi, and it's very easy to say, okay, well, Delphi is great. Um, it happened. It's gone. You know, as soon as uh, Philip of Macedon took over, Delphi lost its neutrality and the prophecies fell off. No one went any longer and it became just another pretty temple. Yeah, and so basically, and th this explains the, the rise and decline, or more specifically the, the decline, is that when Philip of Macedon came in, he absorbed all the independent city-states and now the monopolistic equilibrium seemed to, to hold. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. So we could say, well, that's an outlier. Any, anything can happen once. But what I think is most interesting is we can actually see extensions of this in other areas. And the one uh, that we mentioned briefly in the paper has to do with ancient Israel and Shiloh. Tell us about this, because here, and I want to champion your paper here, because this is one of these papers that might not get a lot of notice because it's about the Delphi Oracle, and no economist is going to read anything about the Delphi Oracle. However, the implications of this are so broad and so ranging, and, and the fact that you discovered this third equilibrium, the, the neutral nexus, and, and you discover it always in the last place you look. That's kind of interesting. But um, it, it, it's one of these papers that I, I think, even if you're not interested in the economics of religion, you need to read this because the implications are so cool. So let's, let's discuss these implications. Go ahead and give us another religious example here, the uh, Temple of Shiloh, and uh, we'll run from it. Well, we'll it's not run from it. Run with it from there. Okay. Well, um Shiloh. It's a, it is a really cool example. Uh, there is, of course, some debate over biblical history, so I, I don't want to go down that path. Instead, what we're going to do is look at the, the more traditional narrative itself. And the basic story, uh, as is told in the first half of the Hebrew Bible, um, basically sets up the Israelites who are escaping Egypt under Moses' leadership they receive God's law at Mount Sinai and eventually settle into the land of Canaan. And, of course, Canaan is what we know today as Israel and Palestine. Now, the Israelites are lumped in as a group. Uh, for most of us, we don't think too much about it, but there were actually 12 or so different tribes and a rather loose confederacy of these tribes. They did have a shared religion. They had shared culture but they were 12 individual groups of people. And they were arguing with themselves all the time. 
Absolutely. Yeah. So you have this this bickering that's going on, and um, they move into Canaan, and everything is good. There's not enough land. There's some tribes that get land. Others, we say, okay, we're going to divide up the land by lot, go out, survey, come back. We'll, you know, draw lots and see who gets what. But the one thing that they didn't do is there's the Levites. And the Levites are the only tribe that are not given any land. Now, the reason uh, it says they're not given any land is because, of course, they are... The, the keepers of the faith, so to speak. They're going to be the priestly class. They're the ones who are going to help spread the word. And they are given locations in different areas where they can, you know, do this work, but they don't actually own anything. Mm-hmm. Instead, they are in charge of Shiloh itself. Now, Shiloh is up on a hill. It's a little bit remote. The area is not that easy to get around. It's, it's a lot like Delphi in that respect, in that there's mountains in the way and there's, there's stuff um, that make travel difficult. But once you get to Shiloh, there you have the Ark of the Covenant and the temple, and you have the, the tribe of Levites that's taking care of everything and keeping the faith. But it is not controlled by any of the other tribes. That location is really interesting as well. As you say, it's hard to get to. It's up on a hill. It's not easily absorbed by other tribes, just in many ways you know, by Delphi. And it, it seems to be one of these geographic uh, points where everybody can agree that everybody else is going to agree that that's going to be a neutral place. That's the place where we always meet uh, at, at some point in time. Exactly. And when, in fact, when there were disagreements between the different tribes, many times they would travel up to Shiloh. There would be, of course, the Levites who do not have a stake in anything because they don't really own any land or they don't have a, a monetary stake in any of the arguments. They can act as facilitators and arbitrators to some extent for these disagreements and People feel, well, okay, we're on neutral territory. Nobody has the home court advantage here, and we can work things out. So it, it did have a really unique role in history of having that. It's, yes, it's religious, it's also political, and it's also neutral. So we have that separation, but it's not a free market in religion. We still have the same religion going on and the same cultural background but we have an area that's neutral that can overcome some of these trials. It is a neutral nexus, and I want to keep repeating that term so we can tag it and then also have it in the general vernacular of economists because it's Absolutely. such a cool term. Um, and, and that's, again, a great example. Uh, Shiloh, it's not necessarily volcanic fumes that's causing all this, but it's this, you know, a neutral party. They're not going to be yes-men, but wow, that's really important for settling conflicts because none of these tribes want to go to war with one another. They need to resolve conflict very peacefully, and this is kind of a neutral way of, of doing that. When I was reading your paper, I was trying to think of a, a couple other examples, and, and you toss out a few here and there in the footnotes. And this is one that you didn't, and I want to toss this out to you as a, a possible explanation. And, oh, by the way, this might be a research 
topic or research mm-hmm. paper for somebody out there. We, we at Research on Religion love to support graduate students and other scholars and thinking of new papers to write. What about medieval Europe, the, the Catholic Church, or more specifically the Vatican? Would that in some ways qualify as a neutral nexus? You have, you have a lot of these disparate principalities. They're always fighting with one another. But the one thing that they have in common and, and maybe like the Levites, is that there's always a a bishop or a, a parish or maybe a monastery out there that could serve as neutral territory. Is, is this an application? Oh, absolutely. It certainly is. The Vatican served a really important role um, throughout medieval history and, and, and even later because it was the Pope that really, again, gave the rulers, uh, the Holy Roman Empire rulers, uh, even Henry VIII, much later, is saying, okay, I, I need the Church to say what I'm doing is right. Now, did the Church always do that? No, not necessarily, but the Church did serve as an influence on all of the ruling parties, who married whom, uh, what land was transferred to whom, these types of things always seem to involve the church. And in fact, um, you know, it seems to be uh, very common in, in Europe of these days where the firstborn son, you know, inherited the land and the secondborn son and the thirdborn son went into the church and the military. You had one in each. So you had some control in each one. And that's where we find that the church starts getting into trouble later on with some of the emperors. So Henry IV is is best example, uh, and the investiture controversy that took place in the uh, 11th and 12th centuries, where you had a number of battles between popes and European rulers, where the rulers wanted more power within the church. So they wanted to start appointing the bishops that could be their yes-men locally, to say, yes, whatever you're doing is great, but the church didn't want to give that control over. So, you know, you end up with huge disagreements and a tug of a power tug of war between the church and the state as to who has the right to do what. So, of course, the church often exercises its, you know, uh, ace in the hole, which is if you don't do what I like, I'm going to excommunicate you. But then, you know, they can reverse it later on if the uh, behavior changes, of course. Mm-hmm. So you find a number of times where rulers will try to have more control over the Vatican than the Vatican would like them to have, and the Vatican saying, no, we're going to step away from this. Yeah, my, my brain is on fire right now thinking about the parallels between Delphi and Shiloh and uh, the Vatican here, that there, there has to be a paper that needs to be written on this and and not not only looking at the actual dynamics of the neutral nexus as you, you talk about but see you know what factors contribute to this neutral nexus equilibrium being toppled or moving into a monopolistic one or more toward a free market one and it's just that's that's why i love this paper so much there's so much going on here so it's a lot of fun yeah everybody get out there and read this kind of stuff um well, now the uh the Domination or the uh, desire to dominate the Vatican is not something that's stuck in the 11th and 12th centuries. Mm-hmm. This is a fairly um, recent thing as well. In fact, if you uh, look back at some of the uh, transcripts of the trials at Nuremberg, 
there is uh, the famous case of one of Hitler's SS generals who testified there that Hitler had ordered him to kidnap Pope Pius XII. Mm. And uh, the reason that he gives in his testimony is that Hitler had indicated he didn't want the Pope to be under the political pressure or influence of the Allies. So this is not necessarily ancient history that we're dealing with. This is, this is fairly current stuff. I, I hadn't even thought about that. That is so cool. Yeah, it it is it is kind of and it's not cool that people want to kidnap each other, but it's it's kind of cool when you see these stories out there. Yeah, and say, ah, I know what that is. Yeah, research on religion takes absolutely no position on kidnapping of of popes. So that's <laughs> I just want to put that out there. But again, this is it, it shows the fertility of this paper. It's just so much is coming out of here, and not only in the religious world, but also in the secular world. And there's one thing that that this paper did. And you have to men- mention this. I think this was in a footnote, but this actually got me. To get up and do something, and I'll tell you what that is in a second, but it, it, it deals with the United States and the national and state capitals. It, explain how, how all of this is connected. Absolutely. So if we're, we're, if we're looking for neutrality, and we want neutrality, if you have a number of different viewpoints um, being represented, and let's say, let's say it's you and I, and you have your followers that want one thing, and I have my followers that want something else, and you have control over the politics, then I'm sort of left out of the process. I may find myself completely disenfranchised. Now, this is a big worry when we look at what's going on in the Middle East. There's different warring factions, some that that share a lot of commonality, that are having trouble bringing themselves together because of the political power that's involved. Well, the U.S. was not unlike that before we were the U.S. What we had were these 13 different colonies. We've gone and had this revolutionary war where everyone is, you know, happy, we're going to be a country, rah, 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 oh, gee, where is our capital? Well, at the time, most of uh, the work that was being done on the constitutions and the various documents, the Declaration of Independence, this was all happening in Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. So you would think... Well, why on earth isn't the U.S. capital Philadelphia? Yeah. Instead, it's Washington, D.C. Mm. But Washington, D.C., back during this time, was basically a swamp. It still and is. It's hot and humid and mosquitoes and malaria and, and all sorts of nasty stuff. It kind of still describes it today, I have to say, but, you know. <laughs> yeah. It's a little better. Today. Yeah, okay. Uh, but why on earth would we choose that as our capital? Part of the reason is that if we chose Philadelphia as the capital, the perception among all of the states would be Philadelphia is going to be the one to benefit the most. Mm-hmm. The Virginians wanted it in Virginia. Well, we can't do that because then the Virginians get everything they want and everyone else suffers. So where do we put this capital? So today in the U.S., what we have is a neutral territory. We have a non-state that is in charge of our federal government. And this, yeah, and this is duplicated in pretty much the rest of the states. Oh yes, and and yes. this is what got me motivated. I, I was reading your paper. I had to get up and and go down to our kitchen and and pull out the old uh, placemats that my son had when he was a toddler. And we had one that had the United States and all the um, capitals of each <laughs> of the states. And I go, wait a minute, the the capital of pretty much every state is not the major city in each of those states. I mean, you're talking here in Washington, it's Olympia, 
um, in in Nevada, it's not Las Vegas. It's Reno. In in California, it's not Los Angeles or San Fran. It's Sacramento. And you got these other places like Montpelier and you know Pierre, mm-hmm. South Dakota. Like Pierre, South Dakota. Where's that? Um, even Albany, New York. Does yeah. that make sense? I, I didn't even know Albany had a New York until my son had to be tested on the capitals in third grade. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and and that, and that's pretty that's pretty amazing when you come to think about that. It is. It's it's kind of cool because again, looking at my own state here in California, if it was San Francisco I mean San Francisco and Los Angeles, we have enough differences where people are have been talking about, oh, we need to divide into two states, North, Northern California and Southern California, and then there's a proposal that went by somewhere for six different states in California. Why Sacramento? Sacramento is hot. It is quite warm in the summer. It's not a bad place, but if it weren't for the state capital, what we would see in Sacramento is, is a lot of agriculture. There's a lot of rice fields there. There's... Uh, a lot of trees. It's it's a, a fabulous place, but you don't necessarily think of that as let's all throw a party in Sacramento. However, if you don't want to show preference to San Francisco or to Los Angeles, you have to be someplace else. Yeah, this is absolutely cool about these state capitals. And one of the things we like to do on Research on Religion here is fill you with lots of useless facts. And I have to tell you one about the state of Washington. The the capital of the state of Washington is Olympia. And this fits in the neutral nexus model very well. It's not Seattle, the dominant city. It's not Spokane, which is the other city. Mm-hmm. But the initial uh, choice for the capital was actually supposed to be Ellensburg. Washington, which is one of my favorite cities. Actually, it is my favorite city in the in the state of Washington, and it's located eh, almost geographically in the center of the state. And if if you know anything about our state, there are two, like California, there are two different states. There's Eastern Washington, east of the Cascades, and there's Western Washington, and, and never the twain shall meet. But uh, Ellensburg wasn't chosen because at the time that they were going to build the capital, there was a huge forest fire that ripped through the town, and they said it was not a good place to do it. We'll do it in in wet and soggy Olympia, so that's where it ended up there. Let me ask you another one. Toss toss this out as a possible um, idea, and I, I don't know if this would work or not. But what about the United Nations? Is, is that one of these neutral arbitrators? Is this an attempt to create the Delphi Oracle on a global scale here in the twentieth and twenty first century? Well, that's that's an interesting one. Um... Of course, there's a lot of debate about the efficacy of the United Nations today. Are they, do they really do much? Should, I've heard people say maybe we should just dissolve them. Um, their, their headquarters of the UN is in New York City today. And I've heard a lot of concerns about how the U.S. has a little too much influence over the United Nations. Now, we can argue whether that's true or not, but there is a perception there and I think some of that perception has to do with the location. Now they've tried to water that down a little bit. There's also locations in Switzerland and Vienna and Kenya. And as it turns out, all 15 of the United Nations specialized agencies are located outside of New York um, at other headquarters in, or in other cities. Now when, when the UN was uh, looking for a place to uh, reside, so to speak, I understand that Rockefeller actually proposed having it out on some of his property. And, of course, 
the first thing that enters my mind is, oh, well, then is the U.N. going to be captured by big business and big U.S. business? So that did not go over. Um, but there, there were uh, suggestions uh, about where to locate that included such things as locating on a ship uh, so that there was no um, location issue. And, uh, of course, that, that didn't happen. We ended up in New York City, but one of the plans for that location was to make it an independent city on its own. Now, I don't believe that has happened. Um, so I, I would say there is some, an interesting story to be told there as well. No, but that's true. But any U.N. diplomat can park anywhere they want in New York City without any fear of a ticket or anything. <laughs> we know that. Um, and again, this this really illustrates the, the broad-ranging approach of this paper. And you know, starting with the Delphi Oracle and thinking about its location, it, it it seems to be such a trivial issue that economists and political scientists wouldn't be interested in, but it has these hugely broad-ranging implications. And for any scholar out there who's interested in this kind of stuff, you know, do a comparison of the United Nations, U.S. capital locations, the Vatican back in medieval era, and the investiture controversy. I mean, this this is shaping up to be an awesome book. You should write that. I should write this book, yes. But I probably won't get around to it. One of your students may beat me to it. Yeah, they might. So the the race is on. We have declared the race is on. Um, I'm going to finish up here in our last few minutes and, and just ask a question that I asked to all my guests. And to do a little bit of reflection on what you learned through this whole process of, of writing this, because, again, it's, it's such a unusual and interesting topic. Is there anything that through the process from the start of this you're saying and eh, nobody's going to buy into this and now all of a sudden, you know, a couple of years later, we're talking about it. What was what are your big takeaways from this? That's a tough question, actually. Um, I guess the, just the diversity of application of economic thought. I think there's a way of approaching the world that we in economics have that a lot of people don't have. And sometimes we get caught up in whether uh, something is true or correct, but you need to take a step back. So religion, for example, a lot of economists would not want to touch religion because it's, it's a very emotional topic. There's, there's a lot of belief. There's what some people would say is a you know, deficit of evidence. Um, but I think we can evaluate things like religion or politics looking at just rational actions on, on behalf of people. What do people do? How do they operate? Why, why do we do the silly things we do? And once you start to break through that, it, it really sheds a lot of light on, you know, what are the, if we stick with religion, since you, you have a great show here, why, why are some religions growing much faster than others? And why on earth would it be the, the stricter religions that are doing so? We would think that, you know, it'd be the religion where I can do anything I want and get away with it would be the one that everyone would want to join. But that doesn't seem to be the case. People seem to be flocking to those religions that require a lot of devotion, either in terms of time or money or, in most cases, both. And sometimes some behavior that separates them from the rest of society. Now, before you give the answer to that, 
this is a wonderful segue into Larry Yannacone's podcast, who we're going to get onto this show in the next couple of weeks. So, folks, stay tuned. But um, I didn't prompt you on that, but this is like one of the best advertisements for an upcoming show. Why do strict <laughs> religions grow faster than the non-strict ones? Larry does some of the most interesting, fun work that I have seen. It's rigorous. It's just, it's marvelous work. So I would encourage everyone to read his work if, if they're so inclined. But yes, you absolutely have to have Larry on the show. And I think everybody should be reading this paper, Lessons from Delphi, Religious Markets and Spiritual Capital, written by Jared Rubin. Larry Anacone and our guest today, Colleen Haidt. Haidt. And I want to thank Colleen for being a guest on Research on Religion today. Well, thank you very much. I have really enjoyed it. It's, it's been a lot of fun. Thank you for listening to Research on Religion. To learn more about today's topic, participate in a discussion about what you've heard, or browse other podcasts, please visit our website at www.researchonreligion.org. And if you like what we're doing, please tell a friend. We'd appreciate the company. See you next week.